0: we believe in one god the father almighty maker of heaven and earth of all things visible and invisible and in one lord jesus christ the only son of god begotten from the father before all ages god from god light from light true god from true god begotten not made of the same essence as the Father. Through Him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day, He rose again, according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets, We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic Church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Morning. Welcome to Gateway Online. Uh, what a year we've had, right? Uh, just so much uncertainty about our health, about school, about what's going to happen with our job. So this morning, let's talk about something certain. Let's talk about God. And let's start with a familiar idea. You know the idea. All religions are just different paths up the same mountain. I mean, this feels kind of like the right way to look at things. Maybe if we all felt this way, we could end all of the violence done in God's name. But Dr. Stephen Prothero wrote a compelling book in 2010 that dismantled this idea. In fact, he called this idea pretend pluralism. Dr. Prothero teaches religion at Boston University. And, And by the way, I don't know if he's an adherent to any particular religion. My apologies if he is. But he has a profound understanding of all the world's major religions, and he writes very sympathetically about all of them. Dr. Prothro acknowledges that the all religions are one mantra is noble. It has the right aims. It wants to make us all one big happy family. But he claims this idea is inaccurate and ethically irresponsible. The title of his book comes from this quote. Listen, God is not one. Faith in the unity of religions is just that. It's faith. This is a lovely sentiment, but it is dangerous, disrespectful, and untrue. The Age of Enlightenment in the 18th century popularized the ideal of religious tolerance, and we're doubtless better for it, but the idea of religious unity is wishful thinking and has not made the world a safer place. He goes further. He says that the fact that the various religions consider themselves different from one another is not arrogance, but just an acknowledgment of fact. They're very different from one another. And they often have different and even mutually exclusive beliefs and goals. So this morning, we almost complete the picture of what makes Christianity so radically different from the other major world religions. The centerpiece, of course, is the belief in the three-personality nature of God. God is a relationship, as we said in week two. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This interconnection of diversity, and yet God is one essential unity, quintessential unity. We've declared over the past four weeks our belief in God the Father and God the Son. Today, let's read the next section of the Nicene Creed in which we declare our belief in God the Holy Spirit. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. Now, the Holy Spirit is kind of like a silent, behind-the-scenes character in the Old Testament drama, but still, He peeks out of the stories and lessons every now and then. Let me list just a few examples of that. For example, in Genesis 1-2, at the very beginning of everything, we're told the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then in verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis, God says, Let us make man in our image a possible allusion to his Trinitarian nature. Then at various times in the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon people in special ways, giving them special abilities or powers, we're told, like Joshua in Numbers 27, 18, or Othniel in Judges three ten, or Gideon in Judges six thirty-four. At other times, we hear the Old Testament authors acknowledge that the Spirit spoke through them, as with David in 2 Samuel 23, 2, or Ezekiel in Ezekiel 2, 2. The Spirit also inspired right behavior or holy living, as it says in Psalm 143.10 or Ezekiel 36.27, and this is not by any means an exhaustive list. Plus, there were various times throughout the Old Testament when believers literally saw God appear as a fire or as a cloud, and many scholars think these were actual physical manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Remember, He was peeking around the corners giving hints. But it's in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit becomes a major character. When Jesus was baptized, some of the witnesses saw a dove descend on him. And they eventually came to understand that this was a physical manifestation of the Spirit. Later toward the end of his ministry, Jesus promised his students that when he left them, he would send another. And in your minds, make that all caps. They knew this was a big deal just by the way Jesus talked about it. But it was mysterious and it was hard to nail down until they had their own unmistakable experience with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit broke out over the whole church. Then they knew what this another was. Now, we believe in the Holy Spirit. That's our focus today. And, And let's do the creed review differently than we've done the last four weeks. With this particular section, let's begin this discussion at the end of the stanza and work our way backwards to the top. The creed ends this section by saying... He spoke through the prophets. Let's take that first. So this is a straightforward restatement of a truth Peter had laid out in 2 Peter 1:20 20 through 20-21. Listen to Peter. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I want you to see something in Peter's note here. The noun translated its origin in verse 21. Check that out. It's actually a verb in Greek. It's the verb pharaoh, which means to bring or to bear or to carry something. Or it can mean to move or to progress. In other words, The prophets did not bring a word. They did not bear this word. It did not move through their personality. It was not their interpretation, Peter says. Instead, even though they were human, he argues, they spoke from God as they were carried along. Same word, Pharaoh, carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the prophet himself was carried along. The prophet was brought before the people with this word from God. It was the Holy Spirit's doing. What in the world does that mean? You know, when I was young, I was terrified of ventriloquists. I don't know why. The idea always just weirded me out. Hey, Peter. Hey, Mr. Mac. But that's not what's envisioned by Peter here. He's not describing divine ventriloquism. The individual personalities and vocabularies of the various prophets are obviously still in play. I mean, Jeremiah is still Jeremiah. Isaiah is still Isaiah. But something much more is going on. Something much larger is happening. They're being carried along by the Holy Spirit, and the result is something much more profound than they could have otherwise produced. It's something supernatural. You know, the Apostle Paul offers an interesting comparison that speaks to this a little bit. He says in a letter to the Ephesians, Don't get drunk on wine, which is good practical advice for all of us. But then, listen to the contrast he draws. Instead, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Just like too much wine can change our perceptions and affect our personality, so can being filled with the Spirit, but in a good way. And I believe an extraordinary, frankly, supernatural filling of the Spirit produced the works of the prophets. We believe in the Holy Spirit. He spoke through the prophets. Now let's jump up one phrase in the Creed. We read, With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. I want you to notice, first of all, here that the Creed says, He is worshipped and glorified. Jesus speaks exactly the same way about the Spirit in the passage that Grace read for us. In other words, the Holy Spirit is personal. He is not a force or a field of some kind. He's not a generic activity. He's an active personality. That's part of the Godhead. And that's the point of this phrase, that he's worshiped and glorified. If you look at the the very first phrase of this section of the creed, you'll notice the Holy Spirit is called Lord, right? This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, by the way. And Lord, of course, is the Old Testament equivalent for God. Isn't it remarkable that Jesus' first followers called Him Lord? And equally remarkable that they speak of the Holy Spirit the same way. Now add to that the fact that the Holy Spirit is worshipped and glorified, and you have full-throated Trinitarian Christianity. He is the Lord. He is worshipped and glorified. This is what we believe. This is why we sing songs of praise about the Holy Spirit. This is why we invite the Holy Spirit's presence. And by the way, both of those things happened in one of the songs Grace just sang for us. This is why we praise the work of the Holy Spirit through our prayers and songs and messages. This is why we baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In short, we worship and glorify the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son. Now, let me state the obvious. This makes our belief very different from other religious expressions, and that's important. And if you're standing outside of Christian faith, you should know that this is why we consistently share our belief with others. It matters. Look, if some Christian has imposed their belief on you in a way that seemed arrogant or insensitive to your thoughts, I'm really sorry. But if this creed is an accurate statement of reality, and I believe it is, then it matters what you think about these things. It matters what you think about these it matters what you think about these, think about these things. Think about it this way. Imagine some friend of yours has an important meeting with me, with Ed. I'm going to give them a very large check that will help them make it through this weird coronavirus period. So you ask them, are you excited? You think this is great and you just want to make sure everything's copacetic. Yes, they say, I'm excited. We can sure use the money. Awesome, you say. And, and do you know what you're looking for? Uh, you ask, c- you want to make sure they get the check. Of course, they say, I'm looking for a man. Well, now you're a tad concerned. Well, there'll be lots of men coming this way. Let me describe Ed Allen for you. I wanna make sure you meet him because he has the check. No need, they say. I've heard lots about him. He's a really nice guy. He's got a big toothy grin. So far, so good. They continue. Oh, he's, he's pretty young, super muscular, got long brown hair, brown eyes, devastatingly handsome, to which you respond, pretty much none of that last part is remotely accurate you're never going to get your check. <laughs> now look, God might not exist, but if He does, and if we have any chance of connecting to Him and understanding our larger reality, we've got to get that right. We've got to know who He is and what He's like. And that brings us to the most controversial phrase in the whole creed. So if we back up one more step, we read what is probably the most controversial phrase in any creed or statement ever written. This phrase eventually led to a huge split in the church, which exists still today. Now, I apologize. I don't have time to fully explain the controversy nor the solution. During this time, we're going to assume the exact language of the Nicene Creed and the current Western understanding of it, because I believe that's the best language available to us. And it has stood the test of time. But but I'm grossly oversimplifying. So for a fuller explanation, please see the Q&A videos on MyGateway.life later this week. All right, the phrase in question, as you're curious, is... Who proceeds from the Father and the Son? Do you see it? Now, the original language of the Creed simply said, Who proceeds from the Father? The Son was added later, and it was added because of two things. First, it satisfies what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in two different places. In John 15, 26, uh, Jesus said, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, can you see how in this case, Jesus is involved with the Father and the actual arrival of the Spirit? <clears throat> and then in John 16, 14, and 15, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And all that belongs to the Father is mine. That, that is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. In some translations at least, actually say he will take what is mine and declare it to you. By the way, in Greek, the word take and receive is the same word, weirdly. So concerning the statement by Jesus, this last one, the Creed authors argued that the relationship between the persons of the Trinity, one person to another, one person cannot take or receive anything from either of the others except by way of procession. Stay with me. It's not completely boring. In other words, there's no grabbing or grasping or clutching or confiscating within the Trinity. There's only perfect unity in the Trinity, so there's only movement from one to another in perfect agreement. In other words, best word, procession. That's the first reason for including and the sign. The second reason is even bigger. It was added because church leaders came to believe that the original wording made Jesus subordinate to the Father. And theologically speaking, this would threaten the unity of the Trinity. I'm going to pause here for dramatic effect and let us catch our breath. Because what comes next is so critical. All right, so if you're familiar with Jesus' teaching, then you've heard the phrase, the kingdom of God. You may know that that phrase means God's rule or God's control over all things, including my life if I'm in the kingdom. It also means being rightly connected to God, being in a good dynamic relationship with God. If God was down with our vernacular today, then he might say of those who are kingdom citizens, they're my peeps, or at least that's what he would have said in the 90s. Given all of that, it's startling to hear Jesus say, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, in Mark 1.15. And then later, in Luke 11.20, he said, but if I do these miracles that I do by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God is in your midst. It is as if he was equating his ministry with the inauguration of the kingdom of God. This is one of the things that so unnerved his religious critics. And finally, and unambiguously, late in his life, Jesus told his followers this, no one comes to the Father except through me. So much is at stake in our understanding of this. Now, let's be honest. There are a few ways of dealing with this stuff and making sense of it. First of all, many modern scholars will say that Jesus never said some of these things. Certainly not the most blatant of them. These were added later by the church. Maybe true, but look. There's zero evidence for this. There exists not one single document, say of the book of John, without that verse in it. In fact, this kind of criticism first appeared in the 1800s. That's 1800 years after Jesus. So calling this imaginative would be charitable. I think some people deal with it that way, but you decide. Another way to deal with this is to simply assume Jesus was a little bit loony Maybe a nice guy, but a hugely outsized and misplaced sense of his own importance. Okay, I mean, such a figure is not really worth admiring, I would say. Thirdly, I guess we could say that Jesus is exaggerating for effect. I can't imagine what effect he's after, but I guess that's possible. Or we could assume that this is the way it is. Jesus is reporting on reality, and he needs to make this point clear because eternity depends on it. And he wants to ensure that we get the check that we're offered. He wants us to know exactly what we're looking for when we look for God. The authors of the Creed believe that this is precisely the case, and they wanted the language to reflect that essential truth. The Son and the Spirit are not add-on characters. They're not lesser gods. They're not lieutenants. We have a relationship with God, not because of our good deeds or our spirituality, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. And that relationship is initiated, not through our curiosity or our effort, but through the work of the Holy Spirit. They all work together in perfect harmony, essential unity, substantial oneness. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. He's worshiped and glorified as are the Father and Son. One God, three persons, eternal and perfect unity, relationship par excellence. And now we return to the beginning of this section of the Creed. We believe in the Holy Spirit The Lord, the giver of life. The giver of life. Okay, as a quick sidebar before we dive into that directly, let me just summarize some of the things that Jesus said and then his students said about the Holy Spirit. For example, Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes our spiritual life happen. I just alluded to that in what I said in the paragraph before this. He makes it happen. Jesus explains this in John 3 where he gives an elaborate illustration to a religious professor about how the spiritual life works. Jesus says this, you must be born again. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Water may be signifying, you know, human birth from a mother. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, our connection to God is dynamic. It's like a whole new kind of life. And it happens because of the Holy Spirit. Not because of our religious family. Not because of our boyfriend or girlfriend. Not because of that great sermon we heard. Certainly not because of our curiosity or our spirituality. Those things are secondary causes. They're conduits. But the primary cause is the Holy Spirit. More about the Spirit. In John 14, 26 and 15, 26, Jesus told us that the Holy Spirit would be our counselor and teacher. You know, when we get those aha moments about God, that's the movement of the Spirit in us. And then in John 16, 8 through 15, Jesus told us that the Spirit would be a convictor and a guide. So when we have those moments of recognition, where we really see ourselves, oh, that's what I did, that's not because we're so self-aware or so sensitive, that's the Spirit working in us. And when we get insight into how God operates, or when we get those impulses that we just know we're supposed to do something, that's the Holy Spirit. I had breakfast this week with a guy who told me that he tends to be a worrier, and he works hard, and he's pretty detailed, and sometimes... That's just how he thinks his life works. But once in a while, he gets this clear sense that God is just working things out in his life. And then he gave a couple of awesome examples. And then he said this, I realize that when that happens, I should just worry less. These things don't work out because I work so hard. They work out because God is working them out. I mean, that's some wise stuff. But that guy's just as goofy and, as you and me. He didn't come to that conclusion because he's so smart or so spiritual. He came to that conclusion because the Holy Spirit is literally moving in his life. More about the Spirit. We learn from Paul's teaching that the Holy Spirit is a sanctifier. Now, that's a fancy word for that means making us look more and more like Jesus, making us more and more holy. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is a striking way of saying we're being transformed so that we look more and more like Jesus. And that's the work of the Spirit. Our sanctifier, our guide, the one who makes our new life happen, our counselor, our teacher, our convictor, and that's not even a complete list. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. So, back to our phrase now. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Now look. We try to find life in so many different things. That friend I was just talking about, talking to this week, he sometimes seeks life through hard work and worry. Isn't that really what he's saying? Some of us seek life through control. We're okay. Life can be good if we just have everything under control. Some of us seek life through pleasure. We just want to feel good. We want to have an awesome experience. That's when we feel alive. We can seek it through the size of our bank account. It can be having a drink or many drinks. It can be shopping or dialing through something on the internet. It can be social media. It can be the next romantic relationship, but none of those mechanisms work. They don't offer sustainable life. They, They offer artificial imitations at best. God spoke to this through the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, and he offered this really cool illustration. Listen to this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. There it is. Whether we recognize it or not, we are constantly looking for life, building first this cistern and then that one, constantly gravitating toward anything that seems to offer life, even if it's short-lived. At least it's something. And we're not alone in these efforts. That's pretty much the situation on planet Earth. But it can be different for us. We have finally come to the point where we believe. We, we build our lives on. We, we constantly lean into. We trust in. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and Son, he's worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. I read a very appropriate illustration about the Holy Spirit this week from an article by a guy named Clark Cothern. He talked about the debate over who actually discovered oxygen. He said, uh, he said this, A Joseph Priestley, an English scientist and clergyman, is often given that honor because he was the first to publish his findings, doing so in 1774. Interestingly, Priestley originally called the gas deaf logisticated air. Say that four times. However, in 1772, two years prior to Priestley's find, a Swedish chemist named Carl Scheele, I guess, independently discovered the gas that is vital to human existence. Strangely enough, the term oxygen didn't actually come into use until 1775, when yet another chemist, a Frenchman named Antoine Lavoisier, discovered and named the gas we breathe. Lavoisier was the first to recognize oxygen as one of our natural elements. And then the, the article concluded like this. Regardless of who gets the credit, it's odd to think of a human being discovering oxygen. Does a fish discover water? The truth is that oxygen, oxygen literally surrounds us every day. And, and even if we choose to call it deflogisticated logisticated air, we can't live without it. It's vital to our existence. The same is true of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Loving Lord, we believe in Father, Son, and Spirit, and we receive this morning the work of your Spirit in our lives. We welcome it and acknowledge it. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come into our home and Build, build this new life in us and increase it, grow it and transform us and guide us and convict us where we're off so we can get better and teach us, counsel us, help us, hold our hand. Spirit, we offer ourselves to you fresh and anew for your filling God, we want our lives to give you glory, and we ask that you would empower us to be those kind of people that we would look more and more like Jesus. Thank you. Multiply your lessons within us and to us. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.